0: Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Today we're joined by Deb Wiggs, founder of V2V Management Solutions. Deb's here today to talk about transformational leadership. Deb, thanks for joining our podcast today.
1: It's my pleasure, Daniel. I always enjoy having a chance to talk with my MGMA colleagues and other friends.
0: You've worked in medical practices and consulted with them for going on decades. And basically, you've seen all sides of how a practice is run. And I saw something really interesting in your in reading your bio, it said, you referred to yourself as an agent of change. And I really love that phrase. And I had to ask you, what, what is an agent of change?
1: Well, I could probably date myself. And we talk about how long I've been in healthcare. It's been you know, the decades are sort of since the earth was cooling, as I like to tell people sometimes. But I think about, you know, agent of change. It almost sounds like the old uh, Get Smart TV show, Maxwell's.
0: Right. Agent. Mm-hmm.
1: And I really do think, though, that there is some correlation to that premise of an agent is someone who's out there to help address an issue, facilitate, carry something forward. And it, I think that most folks need to realize that being an agent of change is an opportunity to influence. It's an opportunity to come alongside folks and support them or give them additional information that they may not have. Being able to see things slightly differently. And I think about that even in context of what I just talked about with Maxwell Smart and how maybe the spy world works. I'm not trying to be nefarious here. However, it is that idea that we come alongside and we see things maybe slightly differently than someone else sees it and being able to help them promote and support them through a change or a need that they have in their organization. I thrive on that. I like to say that I consider myself a changer, not a sustainer. And there's a difference in skill sets attached to that, which we can talk about a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of that willingness to come alongside folks and help them move through a process.
0: Okay. Now, when we, you and I talk a lot about leadership and leadership skills. And when we're talking about change is the idea behind leadership, or at least the philosophy behind it, is that evolving at all? Is there change taking place actually in a leader's role at this point?
1: Um, I would like to think that folks are embracing leadership slightly differently than they may have in the past. Although, um, quite frankly, there's really nothing new under the sun. It's just the time and frame in which we are of what needs to be considered or applied as as considering leadership. The premise of transformation leadership is that willingness to step in and move an organization through some process. I like to say that, you know, our normal was someone else's change. And we get resistant to that. There's a lot of talk today about burnout and about too much going on. And I really like the idea of transformational being the willingness to move past your current state. It should be a normal, it should be expected that we're going to continue to change and evolve. We do it every day whether we like it or not, but it's the idea behind it and the intention behind it that's important. I'd like to think that leadership is choosing to embrace the opportunity that making a change implies, as opposed to being resistive to it and being stuck.
0: Mm -hmm. You use the term transformational leadership. Mm -hmm. Now you're gonna be a presenter on May 29th uh, for an online seminar on transformational leadership. You talked about it a little bit, but I wanna dig a little bit deeper. Give us an idea of what transformational leadership is. How is that different than say, Uh, transactional leadership or other types of leadership that have been bandied about for decades now?
1: Um, I think that the, the important thing to consider is transformational leadership typically has a higher percentage of relationship skills. Transactional leadership is more highly focused on data skills and information skills. Both of them are equally important in organizations. It's just when you use one skill set over another. I don't believe they're exclusive to one another. And if you happen to be someone who is highly gifted in data analysis or process function, you're an, it's an amazing skill set, but you may need to have a partner or someone to work alongside you who has the ability to translate those processes and get people to move forward. folks. You know, really making change is hard if they don't know the why. And that why's only come from the premise of relationship. And so being able to do that, I think, is as important as it is actually doing the functional things of, you know, keeping the budget in place, you know, making sure you've got your regulatory environment functioning appropriately, compliance, all of those things are considered transactional leadership skills and the awareness of how to do them. Transformational skills are more about communication strategies, delivering a message in the way someone else can hear it, understanding the correlation between the data and how that data influences people's behavior, asking people to move to do something they may not always be comfortable doing, but giving them the support and resources they need to do it. Um, it's, it's that why premise. I would say transformational leadership is the why and transactional leadership is the how.
0: Okay. Now I've also heard another type of leadership mentioned before, servant leadership. Where does it fit in on the scale?
1: You know, servant leadership to me is is an is a personal heart issue. And folks with servant leadership, that's a more about a style than a set of skills. And I'm not saying that servant leaders don't have a skill set, but servant leadership is a mindset to me or a heart set of how I see myself in context of the rest of my team. I think you can have a servant leadership mindset regardless of being transactional or transformational. That is about an overall perspective regardless of what your intentions are within your organization. I see transformation leadership and transactional leadership more about the intentions of how you're functionally moving the organization forward or a practice forward. They're much more the practical, tangible things servant leadership i believe is very personal and very much from a soul heart um place and it's and it should be a part of in my opinion i totally embrace the premise of servant leadership but that is something that you can be regardless of what your position is in an organization everyone can serve someone else
0: mhm and transformational in its name is there's change taking place right. so when you think about it that way, and you were talking about earlier, uh, defining being a, a, an agent of change, can anyone in a medical practice be a transformational leader? Even someone in the in the front staff, if do they have enough autonomy to exact this sort of change in the organization?
1: Well, when I hear people saying, "I don't have the ability to influence," or my, why am I? favorite my least favorite phrases i hear over and over again is my doctors won't let me and i argue the point is we always are the leader of at least one and that's ourselves so incrementally you can influence change regardless of the uh, organizational position that you hold um, in your particular practice or um, uh, organization but it is the idea that you know I argue, I had a front desk member, staff member years and years ago, and to this day, I, she stands out in my mind because every single day she chose to make a difference for the people that she worked with. And it came out in how she did her work, how she engaged with others, how she helped patients. And she did it with a joy in her face. She did it with a willingness, even on the days when I knew things weren't going very well for her. And she could do that because she made a choice, and so I think that's one of the things that we lose sight of is every single day we have a choice, and so if it's telling yourself you can't do anything because you're working in a bureaucracy, because you're not able to, um, you know, your boss is someone who isn't available, it's how you choose to then behave yourself that is transformational. You never know when the thing you choose to do in that given day is going to influence someone tomorrow.
0: Hmm. Now I want to take a step back and ask you a question and I've asked other leadership gurus about this before. Can leaders be molded or, or are they born?
1: I think it's easier if you're born, but I do believe you can be molded. It's just, but it's, but I do believe, that we are given a certain set of strengths. Um, if you look at the books like Strengths Finder and some of the work by Marcus Buckingham, and I think it was he who once said, you know, play to people's strengths they, and manage their weaknesses. So the premise of a leader being uh, molded or born, there are some innate things I think are, are people who are comfortable talking you know, out in crowds and stuff like that may have more of a perception of being leaders but I know a ton of great leaders who are very much behind the scenes, moving things forward. It's about what your intention is. And um, I think that you can be a, a good leader and even a great leader if you're playing to your strengths. And so that's, that's why I talked about the differences most in our particular industry. I see mostly transactional leaders who are very good at the, You know the black and white dot and tittle kinds of skills like um, budgets and finance and operations and policies and procedures because the medicine as a whole is driven by those kinds of things so people tend to to be drawn to that who are those kinds of skill sets and that's terrific but if you really want to make a significant change in your organization then you need to partner with someone and it may be one of the physicians it may be someone else on your team who has that ability to communicate sometimes in a way that someone else can hear it and you don't and not be consumed always by the data, but also by the direction that you want to go.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot
1: of folks assume their directions are prescribed for them. And I would argue that that's not true.
0: Right now you're talking a lot about change. mm -hmm. So how, how do you make that happen in a medical practice? How is change enacted?
1: Well, so first of all, a lot of people resist the word change, and I—I I used to myself. I actually had one year where I asked, "Could I please have a year without change?" And I, you know, it was like I didn't want staff changes or any financial change or anything. Like I got six months, and it was a great respite. But I got also the awareness that in that time, not having anything happen didn't necessarily put us where we needed to be. I think the idea is—is—is is is the perspective that you start thinking about change as opportunity as opposed to one more thing or more of a burden or more work to do, but to really change how you change how you look at change. And that's something that I had to do for myself because I would allow myself to be in a negative space thinking about things and, oh my gosh, I've got one more thing to do and they're asking me to do this one more thing. Instead of looking at it as what's this going to do to move us forward? Now, I believe the important partner to change and accepting change is why? And it's the, why are we doing this? And the my least favorite answer to that is because someone told me we had to. Uh, it's it's free, Very rarely do you actually have to do something in a lot of environments. Sometimes regulation implies a change, but if you really look at it, nobody's looking to have you do something more harder or complex than it already is. And it's calling that question. So, um, I think that's probably the thing I find most challenging is for people to not be resistive to change. And that's Mm -hmm. the leader has to be excited about it. You have to be excited. The second piece is, is a phrase that you've heard me use before, I know, small steps frequently. All change occurs in incremental steps, not in big, huge leaps and bounds. Frequently, if you do that, you're going to end up with a hot mess on the other side and a big cleanup to go on. So it's being deliberate in how you go about applying change. Unless, um, you'll hear me talk about this on the 29th, the times when you do have to go to that command and control leadership place is if you're up against something that I say is either, either illegal, on fire, or someone's gonna die. And those are all very serious statements, but they are, you know, in particular situations, you can figure out, is this circumstance I'm in front of me right now that critical that it's gonna hit one of those three buttons? 99 times out of 100, it's not. And then it's the willingness to step back, look at it, and then just do the next thing. Don't feel like you have to accomplish it all in this very second or moment. Let me talk more about that
0: on the 29th. Sure, and I wanted to ask you about this because we were talking about leaders. You mentioned earlier, skill sets, Mm -hmm. and it might be a stereotype, but you think about a leader, and and this might be a stereotype that's being chipped away at quite a bit at this point, um, but we think of leaders as you know demonstrative, strong, they've, you know, they've got, they're forceful, they're bringing all this, but mm-hmm. I know that there have been books written on how uh, introverts can lead the world, and there are different types of leaders out there. So if you could speak about that for a minute, that there are different types of leaders and how they can each succeed in a medical practice
1: Well that really gets to the root of know thyself and understand what it is that your intentions are for your own self professionally I complete I know some amazing introverts that are phenomenal leaders and I know some amazing extroverts that are pretty much don't actually lead they drag. So to actually Label somebody something isn't really going to help you know whether they're good or bad. I also believe that it isn't really about the labels. It's about really looking at your particular, um, to use a Mary Poppins phrase, carpet bag of um, tricks or things that you do, your skill sets, the things that you love. Where are your passions? And that's what I also would tell people is it isn't about... You know, someone else's perception of whether or not you're a good leader, it's about what you believe and what you're doing to meet what you're passionate about. Um, Many years ago, I came up with my own perspective on that is because there were days when I really didn't like my job at all. I hated it. And I decided to get some perspective on that. And so 80% of the time in any given day, week, month, or year, I'm going to really be doing the things I love to do um, that I think I'm good at, Or I I know I'm good at because people have told me um, that I see making a difference. And I work to make 80% of my professional life that way. Actually, it's my whole life, but for the most part. Then I know there's 20% of my uh, workday life, whatever, that isn't always going to go my way. And I sort of say in my own head, build a bridge and get over it. But it is that mindset that says, you know, it's not going to be a perfect day all the time. There's going to be crisis. There's going to be chaos. But it's how you choose to handle that and manage it that then allows you to live most of your time in the 80%. So mm-hmm. keeping that 80-20 perspective, um, the great way to figure that out for yourself, um, seven habits of highly effective people. There's a four-box matrix that talks about the important and the urgent and the unimportant and the non-urgent. And it's in invaluable tool for me on a daily basis to look at what I'm doing at any given moment in time to say, which box am I living in? And if it's not in the important boxes, um, then I shouldn't be doing it at all. If it's in the urgent and important, that usually means it's a crisis thing or something acute. And I get that done, that's 20% of my days. I live 80% of my day in the important but non-urgent world. That's just a way to help you put some structure to that thinking. Um, And so I I found that to be a great, great way for me to measure my days. And it also keeps me from going to a place of being defeated. I think sometimes that's another part of our challenges as leadership is to we get we live in a culture of disease, and it's um it's, you know and, and there's there's contagions attached to that. Um, people are fe- in fear and pain that are walking in our doors as patients every day. That's very contagious. So how do you inoculate yourself against those kinds of things and that kind of thinking? Is by putting together a, your own toolkit of those reminders that help you to be successful. It's, there's nothing more gratifying than being able at the end of the day to walk away saying, gosh, that was an 80-20 day or 80-20 week. It just keeps perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because change needs to be made in certain organizations and certain people will recognize those changes that need to be made, but how do you then convince the individual who recognizes the change, that they have the empowerment, that they have the ability to enact that change. When, when the point I'm making is, if their organization doesn't realize it, how would you advise someone to then step in and, and be able to enact change?
1: So, so there's two things to that. There's change that can be done within a system that requires no permission, in my opinion. People, I believe there's kind of an ascription mythology where people ascribe a requirement for permission to do something which has no, there's no rationalization for why they need permission. They can just do it. It's the right thing to do. And it's one of the things I find when I walk into practices frequently, there is this uh, permission procrastination for, I love alliterations as you can tell. But it's that idea that people are waiting for someone else to give them permission to do something that is very rational and appropriate. Um, and I think those kinds of things, it should be the mindset of doing with the intention of doing it to help improve, change, you know, help a patient be, do something. It's, it's the mindset behind that. I think you should just do it. Now, big structural change or process change that involves multiple people outside of your own sphere of influence, that's a little bit different conversation. And typically, depending upon the magnitude of that, you come back to the why question and trying to help people understand the why and to break through their potential fear perspectives. Now, what I do know is sometimes you're up against a personality type and that can be very difficult. And I don't have any magic bullet or answer for that because every time it's situational and unique, but you may have someone in your organizations that resisted because of their their personality or their own fears that you can't address. And then you have to make a decision on the, the importance of that versus continuing on in the same vein. And it may be that you can figure out a different way to influence over time or to make even smaller incremental change that starts to demonstrate success Or my other favorite thing is find out someone else out there who's doing it successfully and pay attention to how.
0: Mm -hmm. Now you have worked both within medical practices and worked with medical practices. And I wanted to get an example that you could share with the audience where you've helped uh, enact real change in a practice.
1: Wow. Let's see. Um, I think some of my most favorite ones have been um, times when we've gone in and even recently given people permission to move past their programming. And I've had a, a, a situation. Um, this is a few, well, quite a few years old now. But um, I was brought into a practice um, to be an interim executive for them, and their budget. They were, um, you know, like a significant amount in the whole, several hundred thousand dollars in the hole, and it was related to a process they were doing around how they had people covering for them, um, locum tenants covering for them because they lived in a rural environment. And the physician, there were physicians working there, and their work was very seasonal, and I, I actually, the thing I did was I sat down and asked the physicians what they thought about what was going on. And they basically said, well, we would—we didn't think we could take that call. We didn't think we were supposed to because it wasn't in our contracts. They said, so if I were to, t- to give you the opportunity for me to sell you certain days where you can, um, you know, I'd reimburse you, you know, I don't know, what, $1,000 a day for taking call on those days so that we didn't have to bring the local tenants in, would you be interested in that? Well, Uh, between the four of them, they took all but seven days a year when before I was having defined coverage for about uh, somewhere between 60 and 35 and 60 days a year. And they they were thrilled to have that amount of time and that extra income. And it was just an amendment to their contract. And we ended up saving, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars because it wasn't just about the time of the practitioner, but also the travel and all the associated costs and it was kind of just calling the question, How can you help me solve this problem? Could we have this change in some way? And it's that willingness to call the question. And they were afraid to ask the question because they thought they couldn't contractually. And that's one of those times when you ask yourself, Is this illegal, illegal on fire? Or someone's going to die. The answer is no. Then let's have a conversation. Um, recently, with another practice, they were struggling with how they were structured organizationally. And it was just coming in and recognize that they had the wrong people in the wrong seats. It wasn't that people needed to leave, they just needed to change, a couple of people needed to change roles. And we were able to change those roles for them and it changed the whole nature of what was happening within the practice. They were able to get contracts finished on time, they were able to make changes with staffing, they were able to uh, open up a new satellite office but it was the wrong people in the wrong seats. Um, or it was the right people, but they were in the wrong seats. Excuse me. They were not, um, you know, they, the great people, amazing people, but they just been put in the wrong slots. And so it's a willingness to call those kinds of questions, um, on a consistent basis.
0: Mm -hmm. Now this may fall into the category of transactional and transformational leadership, but once you've enacted change, or once you've put in place some um, new ideas to, to enact change, how do you measure it? How do you actually know that change is taking place?
1: Well, the first thing I say is begin with the end in mind. Um, that's another Steve Covey statement, but it really is. Um, I believe very strongly in setting up at the beginning of something. Here's, what we, here's where we think we would like to go. And I use the word think in there intentionally. Because sometimes you have to start something to find out if it is possible or not. And I will tell you the caveats to that are have to do a lot with finance and what the cost to the organization is gonna be. But there's a lot of things you can do incrementally to find out information and, and, make, and then make adjustments as you go. But you have to have an intention behind it at the front end that people can buy into, that they can see that, and, it, and understand the why behind it So start with those places and then pick one or two metrics that are going to inform you as to whether or not you're being successful. I know of a large organization that completely restructured the physical space that they worked in and we're talking millions of dollars here. At the end of it though, they had an intention to increase their ability to see more people in their practice more efficiently. And when they did that, and it took two or three years to do it, but at the end of the day, they were seeing 50% more patients per day with the same exact number of folks doing the work. So, and on the other hand, you could have, you know, at a front office or in a billing office, you know, an intention to reduce the cost of um, claims and how many, you know, claims you're doing, walking through a process and looking at it and going, you know, we're spending too much time or money you know, with claim errors, well what's that about? And taking a moment to look at that, and it may be to someone that even weren't even aware that that was an issue. So it's it, it doesn't have to be very expensive or elegant to keep track of something. And quite frankly, most of the time I encourage people to only keep track of something until you have it set. Um, it's, and it's the kind of the rule of threes or multiples of three something very simple practice it for three days and it's done some things are a little bit more complicated take you know 21 days or three weeks and some things can take three months you know six months something like that but set a time frame so that it doesn't just become another thing you continue to pay attention to if it's working stop paying attention to it We'll mm-hmm. know if it breaks after that sure but sure. It is, that's something I do find too with other one other thing I will say is along that mindset is moving people through change is about giving them what they can tolerate in increments. Um, That's that small steps frequently. You wanna lead to stretch the rubber band that pulls people along with you. But if you push yourself out too far, you're gonna break the rubber band. And not only do you fall forward, they fall back. So, and if you ever haven't done that exercise, it's quite fascinating to pull people and then watch what happens when the band breaks, except you don't wanna hurt people. But the visual behind that I think is very important. So that's what I encourage folks to do is, is to be mindful of timeframes and outcomes and then celebrate them. And that's the other thing is any change you make and that, you allow, or that people are a part of is celebrate it. Celebrate their commitment to it. Celebrate their influence in it. And, and don't forget to have fun. Change doesn't mm-hmm. have to be painful.
0: Right. All right. Well, Deb, thanks so much for sharing these insights on leadership and transforming organizations.
1: Well, you know, it's always my pleasure to be a part of this conversation and to anyone listening to this podcast right now, I really just want to encourage you to stop for a minute, take a deep breath, give yourself permission to relax and to think for a few minutes before you move on to your next thing.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Yep. Take care.
0: Thanks again to Deb Wiggs, founder of V2V Management Solutions. If you'd like to know more about becoming a better leader in your organization, MGMA has an upcoming online seminar, Transformational Leadership, From the Front Office to the C-Suite. This event is May 29th and it's designed to help healthcare professionals embrace change management and strategic vision planning. For more information visit mgma.com/leadership. Thanks again for being an MGMA insider. I'm Daniel Williams.